Well, I want you to picture two men in the hospital. They're sharing the same room. They're both suffering from the same affliction, which is rheumatoid arthritis. Extremely painful. Hurts to walk. Hurts to move. Also, both men profess faith in Christ, but they have very different responses to their trial. One sits there in complete doubt. He's asking all the typical questions, uh, like, why me? Why is this happening to me? Where, Where is God in all this? I thought God loved me. I thought God was good. I thought following Christ would make my life better. He doesn't understand his suffering. He doesn't think it's fair. His attitude is completely negative toward his trial, and therefore he complains about everything. All this does is sink him further into his depression. It's like there's a a storm cloud above him, and when people come to visit, he just pushes them away. The other guy is different, though. He responds in faith. Some of those same questions pop into his mind, such as, why is this happening to me? This this doesn't feel fair. But he quickly answers them with the truth of God's word. This man values Christ above all else, so he takes joy in the fact that his pain is actually drawing him closer to the Lord. In fact, the more he suffers, the more he just longs to depart and to be home in heaven. His suffering has purified and intensified his hope. So he lays there rejoicing, not because of the pain, but because of what God can and is doing through it. His attitude is therefore positive. He's cheerful. He looks on the bright side. He finds even a way to to give thanks because things could still be worse. And when people come to visit, he's the one who ends up encouraging them. So what's the difference between these two men? Physically, they have the same condition. They're, They're going through the same trial. They have the same circumstances. The difference comes down to their heart, their mind. They view their trial in opposite ways. One is positive, the other is negative. One in in faith, the other in doubt. One in joy, the other in sorrow. One in trust, the other in fear. The reality of life in a fallen world is that everyone will suffer trials. I hope you haven't deluded yourself to think that just because you you follow Christ, you you will escape trials in life. You won't. The Christian, the non-Christian, everyone will suffer their share of hardship. Like Job 5, 7 says, man is born for trouble as, as sparks fly upward. The question is, how will you respond? How do you want to be characterized when trials come your way? Do you want to be the person who just shrinks away in doubt and disbelief and, and fear, anxiety and worry? Or do you want to respond in faith, trusting God, even rejoicing in what God can bring about through this trial. So, which will it be? I trust that most, if not all of you, think to yourself, I wish I could rejoice in my trials, but how how do you even do that? How is that even possible? Well, we're going to find out this morning from James chapter 1. So you can take your Bibles now and open them up to James chapter 1. I've been anticipating getting to James for some time now. And technically, we already started about a month ago. We did an introductory message on James chapter 1, verse 1. But now we're ready to go through verse by verse and start unpacking what, what God has to say to us from this letter of James. James, as I said before, is notoriously hard to outline, to reduce to a single theme. He just covers so much ground. But at the same time, though, there's much to be said about the first issue he brings up, which is trials. James starts with a very short greeting. It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point. 
He says in verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now, this is quite the by the book introduction. Very short, sweet, to the point, like I said. But don't think he's detached. He cares very much about these Christians that he's writing to. It's just that he feels burdened to get down to business. There are important matters he wants to discuss with them as their shepherd from afar. And at the top of his list is trials, namely how they are responding to their trials. And James will revisit this subject of response to trials at the end of this letter, but let's just start by seeing what he feels so urgently he's got to tell them right at the beginning of this letter. So let's go ahead and read our passage for this morning. James 1, verses 2 through 4. James 1, look at verse 2. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I know for a lot of you, these are familiar words, important words, challenging words. This may be the best known passage in scripture on how to respond to trials. To the world, of course, it's just crazy talk. I mean, count it joy. How how on earth are you supposed to do that? I mean, joy comes when you escape your trials, not when you you have to go through them and and endure them. So what is James talking about? Well, I want to start by giving you just the the gist of his message. The the main point of it all, James writes to transform how we think about trials so that our lives may be transformed by our trials. I know that's kind of like long and wordy, but if you're a note taker, write that down. That really is the essence of this teaching. James writes to transform how we think about trials so that our lives may be transformed by our trials. These are transforming trials. Trials given by God to transform us. But they only work when our thinking is first transformed, such that we see God's design in our trials. And so, again, fundamentally, James is trying to transform how we think about the trials that come our way so that our lives would be transformed by these trials that we would endure. This is the, the right response to trials. This is the, the gist of James's message. We want to get even more specific, though. We want more than just the gist. We want the details, too. So let me give you these three requirements for transforming how you view your trials. It's what it's all about, but we're going to get into it. Three requirements for transforming how you view your trials so that you may be transformed by your trials. Three requirements for transforming how you view your trials so that you may be transformed by your trials. The first is this. It's the command you must obey. The command you must obey. Verse 2. It's where he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, my years at this church, by God's providence, I feel like we've already covered on Sunday morning some of the major statements in Scripture on suffering and responding to trials. We've heard from Peter, who tells us to rejoice in our trials. We've heard from Paul, who tells us us about the gift of suffering. But now it's time to hear from James. And his message is both the same and unique at the same time. 
And the subject matter, of course, is trials. This word for trials, though, it's going to be a, a key word in James chapter 1. Pyrasmus in the Greek, it has, has a dual meaning where it can refer to either a trial or a testing or a temptation, temptation to sin. The context will, will let us know. And, and later in the chapter, James will use the same word to refer to our temptation. But here at the beginning, it's very clear by the context. He is talking about trials, the testing of, of us and our faith. Now, when you think of trials, what do you think? You probably think of the last trial you went through or maybe the trial you're still in. But notice he calls them various trials. These trials are multicolored. The word was used of Joseph's coat of many colors. Trials come in all different shapes and sizes. James is not exclusively talking about Christian persecution. That would count, but there are many more types of trials. Every season of the year, every station of life, seems like it comes with its own set of trials. There's sickness of all sorts, from just a persistent headache that won't go away to a life-threatening disease. There's accidents. Maybe your budget's already tight, but then one of your kids falls, hits their mouth, requires extensive dental surgery. That's going to be a trial. And speaking of, of, of money, there's all sorts of financial hardships, not being able to feed your family or, or pay the bills. That's a real trial. In fact, a combination of poverty and oppression was the main trial of James's original audience. And then there are relationships. And I would say probably most of our trials come from relationships, other people. You see, when you care about someone, that means they're able to wound you in a special way and it just opens up all sorts of trials and tribulations, relational hardships. And I would say probably most of our hardest trials come from family strife. These are various trials. They're they're all sorts. Life is full of trouble. And like Rod said earlier, it's just a matter of time before it comes your way. And so notice that's why James says in verse 2, he doesn't say, if you encounter various trials, he says, when you encounter various trials. It's just a matter of time. And honestly, it's not, it doesn't take that much time. <laughs> just, just be alive for a little while and you'll quickly find some trials. It's part of life in a fallen world where sin and sickness and suffering and death exist. There's going to be trials. Your day will come. Your, your number will be called. You will encounter them, he says. The Greek term for encounter here. It speaks of falling into the middle of something as if you're, you're trapped, you're engulfed, you're surrounded. And that, that really is how our trials feel sometimes. That we're engulfed, we're surrounded, we're suffocating. Have you ever jumped onto a pool cover? I hope you haven't. It's incredibly dangerous. We used to do it all the time as kids. Don't tell my parents when they visit this week, but it, it's super dangerous. The danger is that you sink into the cover and it just engulfs you, it traps you, it, it sucks you down, and it, the risk is it will just suffocate you. You won't drown, you suffocate on top of a pool. But no matter how much you flail about, it can be very hard to escape. At the very least, I think that's a, that's a good picture of how our trials feel. 
trapped. We're, we're suffocating. We, we, can't, we can't escape. And sometimes these various trials, they feel not just like encounters, but chance encounters. Like just, that just came out of nowhere. Who can prepare for such things? Okay, maybe Peter had advance warning one time where Jesus told you, hey, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, to test your faith. So he got advance warning, didn't even help him. We don't get such head notice. I mean, I guess some trials can be expected to a degree. Like if you're pregnant, you're going to have a baby. And certain hardships just come with that territory. And you can try and mentally prepare for that. You will be tried by the pain of delivery and maybe some sleepless nights thereafter. That's a trial. But who's prepared for when something goes wrong with the baby? No one's prepared for that. Those are the trials that just kind of punch us in the stomach and knock the wind out of us. You cannot prepare for those trials. But maybe the hardest trials to face are the ones which are self-inflicted. Maybe you had a real bad day at work. A cop pulls you over for speeding on the way home, but you're so frustrated just in that split second, you decide not to stop, but to just keep going. And you speed up. A minute later, you come to your senses, you pull over, but the cop isn't happy, and so you're arrested. And now a whole new trial begins. You're going to have a criminal record, court appearances, fines, maybe even jail time. Your job fires you. Now you're broke. You have no income. Who's going to hire you? It's a world of hurt. That's, it's a real trial. So I don't think I need to continue. I think, I think you get it. You've experienced it. Trials, they're, they're real. They're frequent. They're overwhelming. Only the fool still believes that a carefree, trouble-free life is possible. But I bet you've all learned the hard way. It's not. It's a fallen world. Even in Christ, we're still sinners. The world is still fallen until... He returns, it's just, it's not going to happen. And I trust you already also know the, the response, the natural response to such trials. And that would be sorrow, grief, anger, doubt, depression. I mean, these are, we would say, natural responses. And I bet you also understand the response of really those in the world who, they have no hope. And so they just desperately try and escape their trials, turning to drugs, alcohol, entertainment, you name it, the list goes on. You get all that. We all do. We've all been there to one degree or another. We're we're fallen. We've all wrongly responded. And these are the wrong responses to trials. They're the response of futility and hopelessness and ultimately just forms of unbelief. But this is where the challenge comes in. We might call the command that must be obeyed in verse 2, where he says again, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, any trial. Understand, this is commanded because it's not natural. We we have to be commanded to do this. It's not natural. No one will do this naturally. It goes against everything we feel in our trials, you know, you're telling me we have to reckon all of our trials as joy. It's like, what does that even mean? How are we supposed to do that? And why should we do that? Well, let's keep going and unpacking this. He says, consider it all joy. Just start with what, what that doesn't mean. 
He doesn't say you have to enjoy your trials. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say that your trials are joy. He doesn't say that either. The whole point is that your trials, they are not joyful by nature. And, and so we need to change how we think and feel about them. It's kind of like Romans eight twenty eight. Not all things are good, but God can use all things for good. And, and trials, they are not joyful in and of themselves, but they can be occasions for joy if you think about them the right way. And to be clear, James is talking about true joy. He says, consider it all joy. All joy, I think best meaning just pure joy. And we're not talking about putting on a plastic smile or, or faking your way through it. This is not a call to be stoic or pretend like, yeah, you don't really care. You're, you're kind of detached. It's not what he's talking about. We're called to, to have a real experience of pure joy in trials. Now, we're going to explore that more in a second, but I already feel the need to pause and explain that James is not saying that joy is the only response allowed in trials. It's also not what this means. James is not disallowing us from grieving over our trials or being saddened by our suffering. Ecclesiastes 3.4 has wisdom when it says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Just think of Christ himself. I'd say he went through a few trials, right? Just a few trials. And we never see Jesus laughing in scripture. I'm sure he did, but we sure see him crying several times. Think about when his friend Lazarus died. That was a trial of loss. I'm sure many of you have had trials of loss. And Jesus knew this trial was all planned for the glory of God. And it would have a great outcome. You know, it, it was going to be good. But at the same time, when he arrived and he showed up and he saw Mary and Martha, he didn't say to them, hey, hey, no crying aloud here. And God actually has planned all this for his good purposes. It's going to be all, all right. And so just be happy. That's all technically true. And, and that would come to be. But that's, that wasn't his first response. His first response was to what? He wept too. Now, if you lose a loved one, James is not forbidding you from grief or sadness over your loss. I can only imagine that the immature and mistaken Christian grief counselor who's going around rebuking people for having sorrow in their trials because, you know, James says, count it all joy. It's not, again, it's not quite what he means, but we're getting there. Another example, think of, think of Jesus at Gethsemane before the cross, and there he was considering the ultimate trial of bearing all of our sin and encountering God's wrath. So Jesus, in that moment, was filled with what? This intense anguish and grief and trepidation. It's why we call him the man of sorrows. And the point is, look, there is an appropriate time and place for sorrow and trials. Now, you get that, but now you can also understand that the point James is making is even in your, your grief and your sorrow, well, you're, we're called to mentally count it all joy. Grief and sorrow, they're emotions that come over us, right? And they're not sinful in and of themselves. I wouldn't say that they're inherently sinful. It's when these emotions overwhelm people and control them. That's when people start going off into doubt and depression that's when people fall away and turn away from God. 
And so James is calling us here to control ourselves, our minds, our emotions, because even in our sorrow, we're not without hope. Even when you're suffering and you don't feel any joy, the call is to control your emotions, look beyond your present circumstances, and find joy in God's eternal plans and purposes. God's still in control, right? And the trial can't rob you of your salvation, right? And, and God's even using the trial to, to strengthen and build your faith, right? And if you really believe all that's true, you can rejoice. And by the way, that's what Jesus did, right? Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross was the greatest trial ever. But in considering what would come after the cross, and because of the cross, Jesus was able to see that trial transformed into joy, and he endured. And we're called to do pretty much the same thing. This is the same call. You have to see the joy set before you. Your trial isn't joy. But see the joy set before you, and then endure. Endure your cross, so to speak. And the point is, this may go against your feelings. This will go against your feelings. But you have to change the way you think about your trials and see them from God's perspective. Like we've been saying, right? James is writing first to transform how we think about our trials. And so look back to the command in verse 2. He starts off the letter. This is the first command. What is the actual command here? It is simply to consider. To consider. We are being commanded to consider our trials as joy. To think about them differently. Consider means you have to make some mental judgment about something. You have to see the, the purpose to your trials and then accept what God is doing in them. This is a worldview issue. James wants to change the way you view life's ups and downs. This is the call to, to get off the roller coaster of your emotions and just emotionally respond to everything and just to stand on the, the solid ground of God's word, which tells us how to interpret everything in life, including the, the hard times, which are still according to his goodwill and perfect plan. And just think of a mother delivering a baby, right? My wife did that three weeks ago. So it's a fresh illustration in my mind. You know, a lot of pain is involved in that process. I think it's safe to call delivery a, a trial. There's pain, there's hardship, there's, there's suffering, there can be complications. So it's a trial. The question, though, if it's such a painful process, why do women keep having babies, right? Well, the simple answer is that they know in a deeper way the true joy that comes after all the pain. They know that the labor pains are necessary if they're going to hold their child. And when the child is placed in their arms, in that instant, the pain goes away. It really shrinks to nothing in comparison to the joy that has been revealed. And, and their mind's like, oh, that was all worth it. Maybe not right away, but they think I could do this again someday. In fact, knowing all this, especially the second time around and thereafter, I think knowing this really enables to mo the mother to change the way she thinks about the pain. It's going to happen. 
It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. But she can mentally count the labor pains as joy because she knows what they're producing. This trial is producing something good. I can count it as joy. And this is what James is telling us to do with all of our trials. You have to come to realize what God is doing in and through your trials. There is a greater purpose to them, a good purpose. Only when you see this and believe this, will you be able to count it all joy? So now we have to ask, okay, what is it then? What is the greater purpose? What are, what are the good purposes God intends in our trials so that we can see them as joy? Well, let's find out. Secondly, the concept you must embrace. I'm talking about requirements to, to be transformed by your trials and thinking in life. First, the command you must obey. Secondly, now the, the concept you must embrace. This is another requirement. Again, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So the call and the command is to count our trials as joy. To make a mental evaluation that overcomes our emotions. How do we do that? Well, you have to know something. He says knowing. You have to know something. You have to realize, namely, that that God is doing something in your trials. Again, this, this all takes place in your mind. Not at the level of your emotions, but in your mind. And you have to understand and embrace the concept that God is doing something good through this trial, which is not pleasant. God has a greater purpose for your trial, and, and, and that greater purpose, that's the foundation for your rejoicing. That's why you rejoice, because there is a greater purpose. Okay, I think you get that. So what's the greater purpose? How does God take something bad like disease or conflict and turn it good, use it for good? Well, Scripture actually reveals several good purposes behind our various trials. I mean, look, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, sovereign, it's not hard for him to take something bad and, and use it for good. It's really not hard for him. For example, sometimes trials are intended to humble us, to keep us from exalting ourselves, that we would not depend on self, but entirely on the Lord, which is what he wants. Like Paul's thorn in the flesh. That's a good purpose. Other times trials are designed to divorce us from a love for the world. The world is passing away and and also its lusts. And trials have a way of just purging away all the things in our life that don't really matter. All all the things we flirt with in life that don't matter. All these other loves. And it purifies our love for, for Christ and for all that matters in God. That's a good thing too. That's another good purpose. And in addition, sometimes God intends our trials simply so that we may be better able to minister to others somewhere down the line when they suffer. That may be the only reason, but that's a good reason too. God has many good purposes behind our trials. But James highlights not the branches, but but the main stem of the purpose of our trials. 
Here's a purpose that can be found in, in every trial. When you encounter various trials, what's God doing? Well, God is testing your faith. He's testing your faith. You see a trial, God sees a test. You have been tested. Okay, so now we have to ask, what does that really mean? And why is that good? Is, is that really a good thing? Well, let's keep going again. This word test refers to the means by which something is tried or proven. So think of a diamond, which is one of, if not the, the hardest materials uh, on earth. And say you have one diamond and one crystal, and they're both shaped. They look exactly the same. You can't tell them apart just by your eye. So how, how can you test them to see which of them is the true diamond? Well, one way is to just hit them with a hammer. Just smash them with a hammer as hard as you can. And the crystal will be turned to dust. And believe it or not, the diamond will not even be scratched. It's harder than the steel. Now, that's kind of a painful test, right? But it serves a purpose, showing which is true, which is false, which one passes the test. And so it goes with our trials. There are tests, sometimes painful, and, and first, what they do is reveal true faith. They reveal true faith. Now, you might ask, though, how, is, how exactly is that a good thing, especially if it's that painful? Well, you need to understand, God already knows who the true and false are. He's not sending us these tests so that he can figure out who's who. And when it comes to his people, his children... God sovereignly allows and ordains these trials to come our way. Not trying to make you fall away. He's not trying to tempt you to sin, as we'll see later. He's not trying to make you stumble. That is never his intention in the test, in the trial. Rather, God's intention in testing our faith is to prove us and to make our faith stronger for our benefit. As we endure, we are proved our faith is made stronger. That's his intention. And that is another good thing. That is a very good thing. Because you remember, right? Salvation is by faith, right? Salvation is by faith. It's not by works. It doesn't come through your own righteousness, but Christ and his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. And it's only by faith and trust in him that you receive that righteousness. Your sins are forgiven. You can be saved. And for us, from our perspective, it's simply by faith that we receive this gift. And James understands this. As much as some people try and say James is all about works, you know, from chapter 2. No, he understands James, or rather faith, is fundamental to salvation. So listen, though, if that's true, anything that strengthens your faith, anything that refines your faith, anything that secures your faith, anything that proves your faith, that's going to be a good thing. Anything that takes our faith and makes it stronger and stronger, that's a good thing. And in this way, yes, very much, we can see trials are a good thing. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's actually right after James. So just turn the page to the next book, 1 Peter chapter 1. We were here, what, five, six years ago, right? When we went through 1 Peter. But Peter gives 
I think just the most helpful analogy and, and explanation of this. First Peter 1, look at verse 3. Peter hits this right off the bat too. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Look, this is all good stuff. God saved us. He made us born again. And he gave us a heavenly inheritance. That's all great. That sounds great. God won't take that away. This is the glory of of salvation. And in fact, verse 5 says, even that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's great too. Not only are we saved by God's power, but we are protected by God's power for that salvation on that day. This is all all good news. But you see how I mentioned there that, that God does all this through what? Through our faith. He is doing this through our faith. Therefore, this makes sense of verse 6 in 1 Peter 1. He says right after this, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, God is bringing about our salvation and our heavenly inheritance through our faith. That's just how he designed it. He has chosen to use the means of our faith. And therefore, we, we will rejoice, even in trials. If we know that, that God is, is testing us, he's refining our faith, strengthening our faith, and proving our faith in the trial. He is, in effect, drawing us closer to glory. Again, that, that is a very good thing. If this is all by faith, anything he does to to help our faith is a good thing. Peter uses the analogy of being tested by fire. You know, my wedding ring looks nice. It's only 14 karat gold. 24 karat gold is is what you really want. That's the, the, the good stuff. Pure gold means it has no impurities mixed in it. It's just pure gold. But how do you get 24 karat gold? Well, you've got to take some gold and put it through the fire, superheat it, melt it down, and at a certain temperature, all the impurities will rise to the surface. You can skim them away, and what's left behind is pure gold. And I've said this before, but God wants 24-karat faith in his children. It's a little corny, but it's it's good, right? It's true. He wants 24-karat faith in his children. God is not as concerned with our daily comfort or wealth or health as he is with our faith. You understand that, right? He's not as concerned 
with all the things that you are, like your health, your wealth, your comfort, your, your job, your house. He's concerned, top of the list, your faith, if you're his child. And therefore, he will happily send us some trials from time to time and throw us in the furnace if it means we will be purified and refined and our faith will be made stronger. To him, for our level, that's the greatest good. And so he is actually serving us by sending us these various trials. And it may sound harsh, but have no fear. This is, this is God's love. The love of a father sanctifying his children. No goldsmith ever melts down gold to destroy it, but always to improve it, to purify it. And it's the same with God. It's just that what makes it hard for us is we have such a different value system than God. And that's on us because we are fallen. And we value comfort above all else or ease or security or success or money or health or whatever. But God values our faith above all else because he values our, our Christ-likeness above all else. And our faith is the chosen channel he has designed to make us like Christ. So he, he's not going to hold back. He is happy to test our faith, to strengthen our faith for our good. We may be like the little kid who, who doesn't know better and sees the needle coming with you know, maybe immunity shot. But God's a good father. He knows what's best for us. It might hurt us. We may not understand, but what he's doing is good. It is good for us. He's transforming us into Christ's image. He's refining us and making us fit for his presence in eternity. Look, this teaching will challenge and confront your values. If you're in love with the world and the things of the world, if you live for self and pleasure above all else, you will never count it all joy. You'll never be able to do it. Trials will only be a cause for depression. But it's only when Christ is your heart's true treasure, only when heaven is your hope, and only when you value what God values, namely Christ-likeness, will you be able to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. It's like Peter says here in verse 8 now. He says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you did not see him now, or do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, do you really love Christ? Are you really on board with God's purpose for your life, which is not your best life now or your health or your wealth, but his purpose for you is to make you like Christ and to test your faith along those lines. Are you still, are you still on board with that? And if you are, well then rejoice and endure your various trials. And then you will obtain as the outcome of your faith, what? The salvation of your souls. You'll, you'll cross the line. You'll get there. You just have to endure. Now, speaking of endurance, we can pop back to James 1 here. Go back to James chapter 1. James, really, he's making the same point with just fewer words when he says, 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God wants to see his children finish the race, cross the line, received, receive the promised reward of glory. And by his grace and preserving power, we will all to his glory. But you get it now, what, what's required for this to happen from, from a human perspective? By God's design, it is faith. But not just faith, enduring faith, persevering faith. You have to now persevere all life long. You must run the race of faith with endurance. It's not enough to run passionately after Christ for a year or two years, then just fall away when the going gets tough. That just means you're not a real runner. But rather, you have to finish this course, and this is why endurance is required. But here we find actually an added benefit to these trials and to the testings of our faith, because as God tests us and strengthens us, he's actually producing endurance. It's a glorious byproduct. Produces endurance. And if you're going to run a marathon, you know, what do you need? Endurance. If you're a sprinter, you're, you're of no use. You have no hope. You need endurance, but how do you gain endurance? Have you ever gotten to one of those phases, like, I think I'm going to try and be a runner, and you, you go to the track, maybe run four laps in a mile, and it's like, you're exhausted, you, you're just out of it, you're out of shape. But if you want to finish a marathon, you need endurance, and the strange thing is, the only way to gain endurance, just by running. But not just running, you have to run, you have to push yourself. If you just run 30 seconds a day, you will not gain endurance. You have to stretch yourself as you run, and that process is painful. It's hard. There's suffering involved. But you've got a race. You've got a goal. You have a prize in mind. So to you, it's worth it. And and along those lines, you can then transform that suffering and see it as a joy, a necessary part of this trial to get you across the finish line. And you will, you will take joy in the fact that each time you run and suffer, but keep going, you're producing endurance. You're, you're getting stronger, you're becoming a better runner. And so it goes with the race of faith. It's the same thing. This endurance speaks of staying power in the faith. Only those who finish get the prize. And so endurance is a, a chief attribute. It must be part of you. But just press on. Embracing the concept that God has many good plans and purposes in your trials. Chiefly, the testing, strengthening, refining, and proving of your faith by which you will inherit eternal life. If you really believe all this and you're on board with this, you'll be able to count it joy and endure. So this is a good thing, and this you can rejoice. But to finish up, though, it's not quite enough to merely embrace a concept. I hope you're, you're tracking, I hope you get all this, but now the, the last step, the last requirement to transform your trials and be transformed by your trials, you, actually, you have to actually do all this stuff. You have to do it. Lastly, number three, the challenge you must accept. The challenge you must accept. We've seen the command you must obey, the concept you must embrace, but it comes down to this challenge that you must accept. Look at verse 4. He says, And let endurance 
have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's actually here in verse four, there's actually a second command. There's a new command. It's, it comes like a challenge that you have to accept. And the command is to let, to, to let these trials and the endurance that comes to just let them have their result. But it's still an act of command. We must, we must do this. We can't control our trials. You got to let them go. You got to let them be. You got to endure and just hang on. After being called to count our trials as joy, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance, now we're, we're basically just being called to endure. To endure. We're being called to actively participate in the process of endurance. Just to let it run its course so that it will achieve its desired outcome, which is what he calls this perfect result. Again, think of a diamond. Diamonds are formed when some carbon matter is put under intense pressure for a long time. And it's another cliche illustration, but God is trying to make a, a diamond out of you, so to speak. We are far from Christ's image, though. So it's going to take it's going to take some time. It's going to take some pressure, but in his crucible, he's forming you into Christ's image and it's going to hurt, but you will have to endure all that pressure to see it through to the end. If you interrupt this process, if you fall away from the faith, well, you will never be perfected. That's the perfect result James speaks of here. He says, so that you may be perfect and complete positively lacking in nothing negatively, really saying the same thing. This word for perfect, teleos in the Greek, James uses quite frequently. It refers to maturity or completeness or wholeness. And there's, there's an already and not yet sense to this standard of Christian maturity or perfection. In one sense, this maturity is attainable as we endure our trials we, we're matured. Our character is refined and we are made more like Christ. Yes. But in another sense, no, we will never be fully matured in this life. Ultimate perfection awaits glory. But understand this, that both manners of this perfection, both are incumbent upon our endurance. In other words, if you don't endure your trials, you will neither be matured nor perfected. You're just going to stop the whole thing. And so really the challenge you must accept is just to hang on for the ride, to endure your trials. Remember, you do that by counting them all joy. And you do that by knowing God has a good purpose in them. But if you put it all together, it comes down to now you you just have to endure. You have to stay in the faith. And keep running the race. This is, this is the part that God calls us to play. Salvation is a work of God alone. We, we, we don't play a part in that. It's his work. But sanctification, we are called to participate in that work. And this is why in this regard, scripture consistently says we must persevere in the faith. That's our part. You have to just keep running. God will do his part to preserve but we are called to do our part, which is just to persevere, just to keep running. You have to 
just run the race of faith that is set before us with endurance, Hebrews 12.1. And, and, and the thing is, if you don't learn how to count your trials joy, how are you going to do that? How are you really going to do that? How are you going to just stay in the Christian faith and, and finish the course throughout your whole life? You're going to face a lot more trials from here till then, from here till the finish line. How are you going to do that unless you learn to count it all joy? You see why he's saying, you see why this is so important? First off the bat, he, he needs them to know this because they're suffering. But if, you're, if your trials are not transformed in your mind, then your life will never be transformed by your trials. You'll be another statistic, another person who fell away because the going got tough. Now, hearing all this teaching, I, I realize some of you may feel discouraged. Why? Because maybe you feel you've blown it. You've already had your share of trials and you have not responded like this. You have, you've done the wrong thing. You've not responded in faith, but doubt. You don't have joy. You've got sorrow. You feel like spiritually you've not been made stronger by all your trials, but like way weaker. You've kind of blown it. So, so what should you do? Well, I would tell you, it's never too late to return and cling to Christ. Just to turn back to him. If you've fallen, if you've doubted, even if you have denied him, you can still be restored through repentance and faith. And that it's, it's not too late for you. Get back in the race. Seek some counsel, uh, counsel rather, but then return to God. You know, if you turn away, if you just abandon the faith, you're still going to have trials. You're not going to go anywhere. It's just now you've forsaken the only hope you had. Rather, if you still feel distant to God because of your trials, well, you just need to look forward to James 4, 8, where he tells us to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And God hasn't gone anywhere. You've gone somewhere. But if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That's what you need to do. Think of Peter. Peter fell hard. He did not rightly respond to his trial. He blew it big time. And so did Judas, by the way. Judas had a trial. He fell big time as well. But I trust you know the difference between the two. One of them is in glory now, perfected. The other is not. And the difference comes down to how one repented and returned to Christ in faith. Peter fell. He blew it big time. But in the end, he couldn't deny his master. To whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. He, he couldn't go away. He may have fallen, but he couldn't go away. He was bound to his master. Even in the valley, he had to return and repent. And he was restored fully. And I pray that's your response. Don't be the seed sown by the rocky places, which when affliction and persecution arises, just falls away. But rather, just draw near to God again. And this goes for all of us. Because you know what James says later? That we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. We've all been there. But just keep hanging on. Return to God. Persevere in the faith and then do so with joy. And as you do, you're going to bear a strong, a profound testimony to the world of this, this supernatural peace and hope and joy that's only in Christ. And God uses that. 
You know, there's a young man in my old college group named Caleb. And uh, later on, he, after I left, he married a young lady named Elizabeth. Elizabeth had just beaten leukemia and lymphoma after three years of chemo. But just a few months after they got married, it returned. And so this time they opted for a stem cell transplant and it cured her cancer. But then she contracted very serious graft versus host disease where the donor stem cells now are attacking her body. And it turns out it's way worse than the cancer. And she's endured years of affliction and intense pain, and it, it may very well claim her life. But she's a strong believer in Christ, and her faith has been made rock solid during this trial. That's a much stronger than you or me. But just reading her blog a little bit about her trial, you know, you find notes about her not feeling happy, but counting it all joy, because she knows God is still good. He's still sovereign. He's doing good things through this. And that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all comparison. She, she feels that more than we do. And she testifies in her blog saying, quote, I'm striving each day to find my joy and fulfillment in Jesus Christ alone, even in the really hard things. And I hope that this peace that my living Redeemer gives me can bring you hope in your hard things too, end quote. You know, when non-Christians read this, they don't get it. That makes no sense. They have no hope. It only makes them more bitter. And really the only thing they can say to try and make themselves feel a little bit better is, well, you know, that person just believes in Jesus as a crutch to help them cope with life. We've heard this before from people who have turned from God and and have no hope. But to the contrary, we would say that our faith in Christ, our hope in God, and our trust in his plans amidst our suffering, it's not a crutch, it's an anchor. As the author of Hebrews puts it, regarding eternal life, this hope we have, it's an anchor of the soul. It's a hope both sure and steadfast, Hebrews 6.19. You know, those in the world, they want to go their own way, turn from God, so that they're, they're on the boat, they take the anchor, and they say, we don't need this, and they throw it overboard, never to be seen again. But then when the storm comes, and it's not so smooth sailing, they're tossed to and fro, they have no hope, they're lost at sea, and eventually they will sink. But we unashamedly cling to our anchor. They may call it a crutch, but we know we have a hope that's both sure and steadfast. And this truth transforms how we live and how we suffer. And so just keep pressing on. You have to transform how you think about your trials. That's where it begins. You have to transform how you think about your trials. God will then transform you in your trials, because you'll be rightly responding. Your faith will be made stronger. And then after that, you know, God just has a way of using such transformed people in his work of continuing to transform this world. You can be a part of that. But to do that, you must keep running the race, count it all joy. And then remember 1 Peter 5.10, where he says, after you have suffered for a little while, 
The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, establish, and strengthen you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. For our good and gracious and our sovereign God, we magnify your name, Lord, and, and pray to you be the dominion forever. You are good. This world is, is not good. It's fallen. There's sin and sickness and suffering and disease and conflict and loss and death. And these, these try us, Lord. They, they cause us sorrow and grief. What can we do? In the world, though, we know there's no hope. It's only found in Christ, the one who, who gave us the ultimate hope. Of, of salvation. The only way was for him, the, the perfect one who knew no sorrow, to become the man of sorrows, to bear all of our sin and shame, all of our wrong on himself, that we could be forgiven, reconciled, and then given just by grace hope. Hope of new life, hope of eternal life, hope of a heavenly inheritance. But we are filled with hope in Christ. It really is our only hope. Nothing in this world satisfies. Nothing in this world lasts. It's our only hope. Christ is our only hope. And I pray this morning, Lord, Lord, through your word, that you purify our hope in him. And by your word, you transform us and how we think about our trials. The world is still fallen. They will come our way, but we have to see the good in them. That from a good father, he can use the bad to test us, to strengthen us, to refine us. Help us to endure. And by this, we will be one day safely brought to our home. We really have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. You are our good God. Just give us this joy. We need it. We need the, the, the self-control. We need the, the new mind, the new thinking. To purify us, Lord. Because then you will use us even more to transform this world. And to, to see those who don't know you come to know you in trials as they see us with the hope and the peace and the joy that that's supernatural, that can't be touched. All to your glory, all to your praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.